You know, this is um, the day around the world that the church is acknowledging the International Day of the Persecuted Church. It's one Sunday a year when the church just pauses and, and recognizes that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering intense persecution, and uh, many of them actually being killed for following Jesus. Providentially, this is also the fifth in this series on the Holy Spirit, and we're looking at Jesus' words, and in these passages, he addresses persecution that is coming upon the church and how the Holy Spirit empowers his church in the midst of that. And so we're going to consider those words in John chapter 15 and 16. But I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been facing a really difficult situation, maybe really scary, and somebody said to you, look, I know this is going to be tough and I can't be there, but I'll be with you in spirit. Is that helpful? Kind of comforting? Let's, let's up the ante. Let's say that you have several, you've been accused of several serious crimes. And your legal counsel has told you it doesn't look good. In fact, they've, you know, they're going to throw the book at you. The evidence just really stacks up against you. But with a good argument, I think this case can be won. So you get to the door of the courtroom and your attorney tells you, I'm not going in, but I will be with you in spirit. <laughs> really? And you're thinking, if you're not with me, you're not with me. You're either here or you're not here. What's this all, I'll be with you in spirit kind of stuff. And yet, when Jesus is in the upper room, the night before he will be crucified, he has told his disciples what's coming. And he says it's even going to get worse than that for you guys because he said there's going to be some persecution and tough times that are coming down the road. But here's the deal. I'm leaving, but I'll be with you in spirit. That's in essence what he told them. But they would come to learn that those were not mere words from Jesus. He really meant it. Because the in spirit would be the Holy Spirit that he would send to empower their witness through the days and the times that were coming. And that promise has been with the followers of Jesus down through the ages to right now. So whatever we're facing, whatever you are facing, uh, Jesus promises to be with us in spirit. And I want us to consider some of the ways in which that's true. First of all, uh, there's an outline in your bulletin. Here's the first in his absence, Jesus promised the Spirit will strengthen believers' witness in the face of inevitable persecution. Verse 18, chapter 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Now, the world here, I mean, it could mean the cosmos, the, that's the word it comes from, could mean the order, the universe. Uh, in this particular case, it means the hostile system of the world's culture that rejects Christ. He's saying, if that system rejected me, it's 
going to reject you as well. You can count on it. Remember the word I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. He went on to say, when they hate me, they really hate my father. And, you know, they'd have an excuse, Jesus said, if I hadn't come and spoken to them and done the works that I've done in their midst. But because they've seen that, because they've heard these things, they're without excuse. He continues by saying, when the helper comes. Now, that's that Greek word that was in the original language, parakletos, which, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, is sometimes translated counselor in the sense of like a legal counselor, a defender, or an advocate, it's sometimes translated as. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit is testifying of Christ, and we think, well, that, that's good, because I'm not very bold in my witness. I'll let him handle that, right? No, he says, and you will testify also. We speak out for the Lord, and it's the power and presence of the Holy Spirit that does the work. We'll see that in just a moment. But the word that he uses for testify here, very interesting also in the original language. It's the Greek word martyrete, from which we get the word martyr, which we know as someone who is killed, murdered because of their testimony, their faith in Christ. And so he's saying this testifying can go all the way to the point of being killed because you follow me. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So Jesus is crucified the next day. Three days later, he rises again. He spends 40 days with his followers, and then he ascends. And 10 days after his ascension, these believers are waiting in that same upper room when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus had promised, and falls upon them, fills them, and they began to preach, and the church is born on that day. And persecution breaks out immediately. I mean, they are arrested. Peter and John are arrested by the authorities. They're beaten, threatened not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Stephen, as he's preaching, is grabbed and stoned to death. James, one of the leaders, is beheaded by Herod. And one after another, these people begin to pay with their lives for their testimony about Christ. And as you go through the early centuries, you see Rome in an all-out war against the church, trying to exterminate these believers. And then as the church gains ascendancy and power, and you move into centuries that follow the collapse of the Roman Empire, the church itself begins to persecute believers, those who don't agree with their theology. And a corrupt church 
has inquisitions and all kinds of attacks on followers of Christ. Then we move into later centuries and we see atheistic regimes, even in the last century, that tried to exterminate believers, whether it was Mao's communist China or Pol Pot in Cambodia or North Vietnam, uh, places in, well, the Soviet Union's gulags, where Christians became targets of the state as they tried to annihilate the church. Sometimes it's been, since the 7th century, Islamic jihadists who have sought, in the name of their god Allah, to kill Christians. And that continues to this day and even in our own country. And even our own government has now, in the last many years, stepped into the position of uh, attacking Christians through the courts in various ways. We've seen this as small businesses have been threatened and shut down. Uh, Catholic Sisters of Charity, these uh, nuns have been told that they have to uh, act in ways that go against their faith and their convictions. We've seen this, uh, as I've read just recently, about Syrian immigrants who've been admitted to our country. And I just read the, uh, the other day that 11,000 Syrian refugees were admitted in September and only 56 were Christian. A judge ruled, and he's upset about this as others are, that 10% of Syrians are Christians and yet less than one half of 1% of those consistently allowed into the United States are Christian. And it just doesn't square with what should be done. And they have not uh, varied from their uh, intent. ISIS jihadists claim there that they um, have made it clear that they're going after Christians because they intend to conquer Rome, break your crosses, and enslave your women. That's a quote from ISIS there. We've also seen in the last several years, and now many top-ranking military officials are speaking out, that hundreds of high-ranking military officers in our military have been ousted from their positions. Some because they just didn't agree with the policy of the administration, but others because of their faith. And they spoke out about their faith in the Lord, and that was no longer acceptable in our nation, which is amazing, founded on Christian principles. I mean, we see it in personal lives as well. I think a, a current illustration of this is Russell Wilson. He's the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks. And last year, he was interviewed about his relationship with his fiance. And when they made it clear that, no, they wanted to save physical intimacy until after marriage, they were mercilessly ridiculed in social media and in print media for taking that stand. Why does this happen? Why do people persecute individuals and families who seek to raise their children to be honest and tell the truth and not to steal and to be kind to others and to be loving. Why in the world would people persecute those? Now, granted, some Christians are really obnoxious. I mean, that happens, okay? But generally, why does that happen? It has to be a spiritual battle, folks. Behind it all and in the world system, there is an evil one 
who hates Christ and hates the people of God, the church. And those caught up in that system, without even realizing they are victims of the enemy, are persecuting the church. One day the Lord will sort all that out. But Jesus said, count on it, it's going to happen. And it is big time. That persecution that was going on in the book of Acts has only grown exponentially since. There are organizations now, and you can check out their websites, like Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors, IDOP, the International Day of the Persecuted Church, that really regularly post what's happening in the world. And now they've said that the top 10 countries that are persecuting Christians would include North Korea, Iraq, Eritrea, Afghanistan, Syria, Pakistan, Somalia, Sudan, Iran, and Libya. Each month, 322 Christians are killed because they follow Jesus. 214 churches or Christian properties are destroyed every month, and 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians. They're saying now that 100 million Christians around the world are suffering for their faith in Christ. 1984, David and Marcia. Van Wagenen were sent out by this church to Africa, and they spent 30 years there in Kenya, Ethiopia, and Eritrea before they were evicted from Eritrea by the communist regime. They came back a couple of years ago and have been serving with us in uh, various ways in a volunteer capacity, but I asked them to share just a little bit of what they saw in their experience in Eritrea, so listen to their words via video. We're David and Marcia Van Wagenen. When we lived in Eritrea, a small African country just north of Ethiopia, we got to experience personally what persecution is like. In 2002, the communist government there closed the doors of all of the Protestant churches in the country so that they couldn't even use their buildings at all. During the next year, many of the pastors of those churches were arrested and placed in prison. Many of these men we knew personally. Haile Naisgi had been a guest in our home uh, along with his family. Uh, because of the church closures, Dr. Kiflu Gebermasko had arranged for us to give training to a dozen or so of his fellow pastors in how to organize and network their congregations into small groups. In 2004, all these men and several more were arrested for the crime of leading and growing their churches. Uh, many have been in prison for more than 12 years and they are allowed no visitors at all, not even family members. But we've come to learn that in spite of the best efforts of their communist adversaries, they've had a major evangelistic impact on both guards and fellow inmates. Eritrea is only one of the many countries where Christians are being persecuted daily. One scholar, D.A. Carson, uh, estimates that there have been more Christian martyrs in the last century than in all of the years combined since the time of Christ. It's right for us to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters who are suffering. Now that's some pretty grim stuff that they've been talking about and that I've been sharing here. And we could get depressed about this, except 
Jesus promised. Did you hear what Marcia said? That because of their faithful witness, those who are being persecuted are seeing guards and other uh, imprisoned people come to Christ. That happened in the first century when Paul was witnessing to his guards and they were coming to Christ. And so Jesus is with his people in persecution, but we can do a couple of things about that. We can pray. And this little flyer in your bulletin, you can put that in your Bible and just maybe regularly, once a week, just pray for those people who are experiencing persecution. We can also believe Jesus' words that he empowers our witness in the midst of hardship, difficulties, and persecution. Even the ridicule that we might face for taking a stand for Christ. I mentioned at the outset of this message that this passage is in the context of persecution, but that's a sub-theme. The primary theme in this passage is the witness of the gospel, the Great Commission, taking the good news of Jesus to the world, wherever that is, even in a hostile, rejecting world. And if we'll keep our commitment to the Great Commission and our eyes on the mission and do what Christ asked us to do, then persecution becomes incidental and secondary. Because the power of the Holy Spirit just inflames that witness and uh, speaks to the heart of people through the lives of those who are being persecuted. That's the way it's been down through the centuries. Someone has said, the blood of the martyrs becomes the seeds of the church. Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the hope of believers even in the midst of persecution. Secondly, in his absence, Jesus promised the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin of righteousness and of judgment. He said, but I tell you the truth. Now, this is amazing. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, don't conclude from that that they couldn't be here at at the same time. They actually were. The Spirit of God was with Jesus in his earthly ministry. Some people think, well, you know, you have to have one separate from the other. Uh, They couldn't be there together. Theologically, there is one God, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And uh, there's a unity in the Trinity, but they actually work together. And I'll comment on that in just a moment. Jesus says, and he when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Look at this. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Let's unpack that for just a moment. The Holy Spirit will convict unbelievers of the sin of unbelief that they've rejected Christ. It isn't the things that we've done or not done that really make us guilty before God ultimately. It's that we've failed to believe in the one who came to forgive our sins. He said the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts unbelievers of that. And he said also of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. You see, when Christ was present, he was sinless and they couldn't convict or they couldn't uh, uh, persuade anybody that he was a sinner because he was without sin. But in his absence, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts people of 
his righteousness and their sin in comparison. What is this about because I go to the Father and you see me no more? You see, after Christ was crucified, the resurrection was God's validation that the sacrifice was acceptable. And that required a sinful, or excuse me, a sinless sacrifice. And so because he went to be with the Father, now we know he's been exalted to the right hand of God as the sinless one in contrast to our sin. We may think, before we come to Christ, that we're pretty good people. We may think, I'm okay, especially compared to that person. Uh, and we like to compare ourselves to other people. But when we finally get into the presence of God, and it may be through the Word of God, it may be through some circumstance we're sharing, someone is sharing with us about the Lord, we realize, wow, compared to His holiness, I am spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to offer of my religiosity or good works that would acquire forgiveness or salvation for me. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And it's only the Holy Spirit, if you're a follower of Christ, that has been able to convict you and bring you to repentance so that we can claim Christ as our Savior. And then concerning judgment, because the ruler of this uh, world has been judged. Satan himself has been judged. Sentence has been passed on Satan. And those who follow him even without realizing it, in the presence of God can realize that's my end too if I don't repent. And so it's the Holy Spirit that convicts us of these things. Now here's the thing. For the believer, the Holy Spirit is our paraclete, the one who comes alongside of us, our defense attorney. He defends us because we are in Christ. But in this passage, it's flipped so that for the unbeliever who refuses to repent, the Holy Spirit becomes the prosecuting attorney and actually passes sentence on that unrepentant believer until or unless that person does turn to Christ. But we have to make sure that we don't try to step into the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of unbelievers. Because our role in a courtroom situation is simply to testify. We're to be the witnesses. And the Holy Spirit is the prosecuting attorney and seeking to either pass sentence or bring that unbeliever to Christ. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we think that it's our role to convict others. Maybe even con to condemn people or to pass sentence on them. Folks, that is so far above our pay grade. That's the Holy Spirit's responsibility. This last week, Thursday... I was uh, doing a, a funeral service over at Diamond Head Mortuary for a man who'd been in our church for a number of years, Alvin Ching. He hasn't been able to attend for about four years now, but his daughter flew in from Vegas, and I met with her, and she was telling me the story about Alvin's faith. He wasn't a believer. He, wasn't, he didn't go to church, but she took her daughter to a Christian preschool in Las Vegas, Canyon Ridge Christian Preschool. Her daughter's now 18 years old and a freshman at Arizona State University, and she's a dance and cheerleader for, for their teams up there, and she was going to fly in for the service. But her mother was telling me when I met with her earlier this last week that uh, 
When she got into that Christian preschool, she came to Christ, the daughter did, and so did the mom. And uh, Alvin saw an amazing transformation and just a radiance of Christ from his granddaughter. And he knew that there was something missing in his life. So when his daughter visited the islands and his granddaughter, he wanted to go to church. And so they brought him, brought Alvin here. And uh, he came to Christ. And we had the privilege of baptizing him back in 2006. But she said it was because of the life of his granddaughter that uh, made that change. Well, after the service, as we sat there at lunch, I, I made it a point to go talk to the granddaughter who'd flown in for the service. And I just want to see how she's doing in her faith. And I was talking to her, and she said, Hal, I really haven't been going to church. You know, I've been so busy with, with this cheerleading thing and my first semester in school. I said, no, but how's your faith? And she said, oh, no, she, she's solid in her faith in Christ, and that's good. But then she told me a story. She said, we were, uh, some of us were taking a hike behind the Arizona State campus last week. There's a big hill behind that campus, and uh, we were in our cheer outfits. It was after practice, and we just went up there and took a hike. And we're coming down, and we hear this guy just yelling and going on. And we thought, is this some kind of a joke or what, you know? And she said, we get down there and realize he's yelling at us. And uh, he's telling, he's, a, he's some kind of a preacher, a, a self-appointed preacher. And uh, he's telling us we're all going to hell because of the way we're dressed and what have you. And he started just condemning us. And I said, that was really helpful, wasn't it? Well, it wasn't. I mean, he misunderstood uh, his role to be a loving, caring witness to people and leaving the uh, conviction to the Holy Spirit. We have to keep those roles separate and realize it's the Holy Spirit who convicts the world concerning sin and Christ's righteousness and judgment for those who refuse to repent. One more thing. In his absence, Jesus promised, the Spirit will guide his followers with truth, keeping them faithfully on track. I don't know about you, but I need that presence and direction of the Spirit in my life because I can easily get off track. Jesus said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Now, in those few verses, Jesus lays out three functions of the Holy Spirit. One of them is that he will complete the revelation of God. The revelation of God came through the prophets who penned the Old Testament Jesus was the ultimate revelation of God when he was here and speaking and showing who God is. But it wasn't complete yet. And so he completed that after his ascension by giving to the apostles and disciples the words that they wouldn't have remembered or that they never understood that would become our New Testament. He completed the revelation uh, by the Holy Spirit giving those words to those who wrote our New Testament. Even John, the apostle, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation spoke of things to come. 
at the end of the age, just in fulfillment of Jesus' words. Secondly, function of the Holy Spirit here is that it shows believers who Jesus is and what he's given to us and what's available to us. He directs us and guides us in our lives. But it all starts with Jesus. If we're wrong about him, we're wrong about everything. He's the North Star. And if we set our course on him, our lives will follow in accordance. There's so many false beliefs about Jesus. I mean, take a university class on religion and you'll hear some amazing stuff. It has nothing to do with reality or the New Testament revelation. Go online or, or just listen to people's thoughts and feelings about who Jesus is. It's amazing. But it's the Holy Spirit who keeps us on track about who Jesus really is and what he wants to do in our lives. One of the great Christian philosophers of the last century was C.S. Lewis. Many of you are familiar with his writings. If not, I'd really commend him to you. But uh, he posed what he called the great trilemma. Some of you are familiar with that. The great trilemma. He said that uh, a lot of people would uh, would write Jesus off as a good man, a great teacher, a wonderful philosopher, But he said, no, you can't just call him any of those things and reduce him to that. He didn't leave that option open, and he didn't intend to. Lewis said, no, you got three choices when it comes to Jesus. Here's a man who claimed that he was the Son of God. He claimed he could forgive sins. He claimed that he was the only way to God. So he was either a liar someone who said these things but knew they were not true, or a lunatic, somebody that said them and actually believed them. There's people like that in in asylums today. Or if he wasn't a liar, if he wasn't a lunatic, that leaves one option. He's the Lord of glory, and we can bow down and worship him. And that's what Scripture says, and that's what only the Holy Spirit can help us to realize that he was, in fact, God incarnate, Savior of the world, and the one who deserves our devotion. And that brings us to the last function in this passage I want to mention. The function of the Holy Spirit is to bring glory to Christ. Point to Jesus. The Father sent the Son. The Spirit points to the Son. And the Son draws us to himself in redemption and receives the glory. Those three are in harmony when it comes to our redemption, our salvation. So Jesus gives us a great promise at the end of this passage when he says this in verse 33, chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Do you think those words would be important to people threatened with torture and imprisonment and even death? Absolutely. They're not looking even for this world, they're looking for the next. And they find his peace in the midst of their persecution. And we can too. No matter what is happening in our lives this morning, No matter what we're facing as we look into this next week or this next month in our 
relationships, in our business, in our workplace, whatever it might be, we know that Jesus has promised to be with us in spirit. That makes all the difference. Yes, we have trouble. He didn't pull any punches. He didn't hide that. But I'll be with you. He, he promised us. I mean, we look at this election coming up on Tuesday, and some of us think, oh, my goodness, where's our nation going? I mean, it's just, we could really be depressed ahead of time or afterwards if we didn't have his promise. But we do. And he said, he's overcome the world. And he said, I will be with you in spirit, and we can count on that promise. And for those of you that may not have yet put your faith in Christ, this would be a good time to do so. We need his forgiveness. We need his presence. And we need his power to live in these coming days. He promised he'd be with us in spirit. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, your promises are true. The worlds are false because they're based on false premises. But you have given everything that we might be forgiven. And now you've given your spirit as a down payment on our lives saying that we belong to you and also to guide us into all truth and to strengthen our witness as we follow you. So Lord, when others mock us or ridicule us, help us to respond with love, with kindness, and with prayers for them. That through that, Lord, you'd speak to their hearts. We know you love them as much as you love us. And you want their redemption. God, we can be channels of that as we follow you, strengthened by your spirit, no matter what comes. Thank you, we pray in your name. Amen.